welcome our listeners to another episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Community Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining me is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central, located in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jason, and excited to be here and dive into uh, what's sure to be another fascinating discussion with one of our uh, high-profile experts in the utility biz. Excellent. Me too. Before we introduce our guest, I want to share about Energy Central for our new listeners. Since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member, if you haven't already, and join over 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. To join, simply visit www.energycentral.com, and membership is free. In the field of load management, we employ the practice of demand response. The practice is to improve efficiency and manage the load on the grid, particularly during periods of high energy demand, like on hot days when we all blast our air conditioners. During high demand, the utility may not be fully prepared for the increased power load and will need to turn to peaker plants for excess capacity. The results of this tends to be expensive and come from dirty sources like coal, oil, and gas generation. For those in the commercial and industrial sector, demand response is a frequent practice that has been employed in North America and in Europe. The utility contacts a manufacturer requesting a slowdown or even shutdown for a short period of time, usually a couple of hours. The manufacturer is typically compensated financially for turning off its machines. The given lead time allows the manufacturer to plan and prepare. As we know, voltage quality is critical for machinery and such fluctuations in voltage can cause machines to break down and require costly repairs and outright replacement. Demand response is a practical method to reduce overall load, generate efficiency, and promote conservation. Our next guest is an innovator in the field of demand response. His company, which he co-founded, has automated demand response and has even adapted in a gamified approach to the retail customer. The company is named Ohm Connect, and its motto is simply, save energy, get paid. Please welcome the co-founder and CRO of Ohm Connect, Matt Dusterberg. Matt? Hey, Jason. Hey, Matt. Happy to be here. Matt Dusterberg has a BA in chemical engineering from UVA and an MS in mechanical engineering from Stanford. Matt served as lead analytics consultant for DataRaker, which was bought by Oracle. He then moved on to become CTO for Kilowatt Analytics, a solar data analytics company working to reduce the cost of solar for residential. Matt captured solid experience understanding the economics of the business, which led to the creation of Ohm Connect. Matt, you were invited to the Power Perspectives podcast to discuss your predictions for 2020 that were published in Energy Central's recent Hot Topic special issue on 2020 trends and predictions in the utility industry. Before we jump into these, Let's talk about your recent article on LinkedIn. The utilities employ engineers, physicists, and policy wonks. The utilities are not known for being customer-centric. For the average customer, you turn on power and you pay your bill. 
there is no warm and fuzzy feeling we get with our utilities. To prove this disconnect that exists between the consumer and the utility provider, you wrote an analysis comparing how Uber, the transportation app, communicates online to its customers compared with a typical utility provider. From the language chosen, the amount of options thrown at the customer, the lack of direction on how to even navigate through the utility website to find what you need, further proves your point on how far utilities need to go to become a customer-oriented entity. The article was great, especially as it was championing for the consumer. Would you like to talk more about this? And can you identify any utilities that are starting to get it? That's a great question, um, Jason, and, and happy to talk a little bit more about this. Reality is I was probably a little harsh on the utilities, you know, comparing them to the latest consumer companies. And one of the arguably most successful consumer companies recently, which is Uber, versus archaic utilities that have really focused on a different uh, requirement, which is the reliability of the grid. And uh, the answer to your question really quickly is we haven't seen much improvement, but that's not really what we've measured success for the utilities against. Um, and, and in reality, they are doing a good job of keeping energy invisible, which I think is the end goal of most utilities and retailers. Um, they want users to turn on electricity, turn on their lights, run their washing machine, and not have to think about it at all. They only want the consumers to pay their bill. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to really engage customers to change their behavior or even think about energy when they send the bill. They just kind of want you to go to sleep. So no, they haven't really improved, but nor are they really incentivized to do so. Thank you for that. You know, before we get further into why you were invited here today, can you share a little bit about your story behind Ohm Connect, the mission of the company, and, and just basically where you are today with it? Yeah, sure. So I started my career trading electricity on the East Coast, and you know that was really fun and, and, and exciting. We we're kind of at the cutting edge of these deregulated wholesale energy markets. And while it was really fun and lucrative, I realized that I wasn't actually making a difference to the grid. I was creating price signals to encourage people to make a difference to the grid. But at the end of the day, it was just a bunch of price signals. And I couldn't figure out how to actually solve that problem other than try and build 50 megawatt gas peaker plants. And so I moved out to the West Coast and I actually found a couple of co-founders who were not in the energy space, but they had the conviction that it was the exact same as mine, that we needed to solve the big energy challenge with consumers. And uh, a few years later, we started OhmConnect. Um, it was a free service that encourages people to use less electricity when the grid is stressed. And we actually pay people to do this. Um, and it's quite simple. Uh, a user can sign up, and our main focus is in California right now. Um, you'll receive a text message notifying when an ohm hour occurs. And that's usually about a one-hour event when the grid is stressed. And if you reduce during that time versus what you normally would consume, you'll get paid in cash through PayPal. And how we're actually doing it is we're selling negative generation into the market in the same way that a gas power plant would sell positive generation in the market. And so at any given point, so say we have an ohm hour from 7 to 8 p.m. tomorrow, and we have all of our users produce electricity during that hour. The market is going out and saying, okay, instead of turning on a 50 megawatt gas power plant 
from 7 to 8 p.m. to serve electricity to those users, we're actually going to have 50,000 customers reduce one kilowatt each. And we'll pay them the exact same amount that they would have paid the natural gas power plant. And the reality is, is that works. We end up saving a lot of money and passing that to our consumers and really providing about 20% of the energy costs by reducing only 1% of the hours. It's a clever model. How many subscribers do you currently have and how is business? Business is fantastic. Um, And I think the the real key for us is that we're a mission-driven company. So we're able to attract top talent. I've been really blessed to surround myself with 30 people smarter than me that are more skilled in what I consider two of the most difficult things to do in energy that I think we've done really well. Um, One is we're able to change behavior at scale. And two is we're able to represent that change of behavior as power plants to the grid. Um, So just as a snapshot, we have three virtual power plants and we've built those over the past three years that are really fueled by hundreds of thousands of customers. Now, it's interesting if you three years ago, you asked me where I'd want to be in three years, I would have been super excited on where we are today. But I guess kind of success begets success. And I'm more just striving to really make a dent in the duck curve and really have 40 power plants in just a few years. And these are the cleanest power plants in California today. And uh, we've got a lot of tailwinds behind us. So we just recently had a bill that was um, really encouraging clean power, smart power. It was passed by Senator Skinner in California. Um, And we've got tailwinds uh, with new devices coming in online and going to 100% clean energy in a lot of states. Matt, you mentioned that you're predominantly in California. I was wondering if you could talk to why the California market was was where you guys at least started. Is it because the, the consumers are more open to it there? Is there something unique about the, the electricity market there that made it more possible? You know, what's, what, what set California apart and is this app, just as applicable to other states? So that's a great question. We focused really on California because that's our backyard and we understand that the best. Um, but we've also seen a lot of interest from various markets. So PJM is the Mid-Atlantic Seaboard, and uh, New York ISO is the New York State Energy Market. So both of those have been really interesting as a new place to go into. But I think the most interesting for us is Texas, who has a very different market construct. Um, for those that are familiar with this, they don't have a capacity market, and so they allow for energy prices to get as high as per megawatt hour. So if you're using uh, an AC that runs to two kilowatts for a given hour, if if the prices are that high, you could be spending anywhere between $20 to $40 just to run your AC for that one hour. So there's a lot of excitement in these other markets, but we've really focused on California today because that's our home. Great. So why don't we do this? Why don't we pivot to your predictions for 2020? which included trends of decarbonization, data transparency, generation decentralization, and a focus on reliability. How about if you run through each one and we'll discuss them? Sure. Um, We'd love to talk about these predictions. Um, Two of them you guys probably are very familiar with, um, which is generation decentralization and a focus on reliability. Um, But let's start with data, because I think that's that's an interesting one that is often overlooked. 
So in 2020, um, we really see this is going to be the linchpin of how we move to more competitive marketplace uh, away from monopoly power. And when you think about where a lot of the utilities in existing and, and pre previously regulated markets, one of the most uh, powerful components of this was this information asymmetry of data. And so utilities have this data and will are, are focused on saving and keeping that data from other parties. And I'll, I'll show you one, I'll give you one example. So Southern Company um, doesn't even allow their customers to see their historical energy usage. And for us, that, that seems kind of crazy. For a consumer, that makes no sense. Imagine if you had to pay your visa bill and they would not show you the transactions that you actually used. They said, you're going to have to pay $700 for this bill, but I'm not going to tell you what you actually spent your money on. And that's how it is in, in Southern Company in Georgia. Now, that data has been kind of a war zone between utilities and third parties. And in 2020 specifically, Texas is going to undergo a transformation where Smart Meter Texas, their data platform, is going to be able to expose more data in a, in a more streamlined fashion. But I think the actual um, place of battle will be California and New York. So in New York, Smart Meters have been going in over the past year, year and a half, and then will continue to go in. And there's conversations right now at the PSC about how to access that data. And certainly you can see that there's uh, two opposing ends of the spectrum. The utilities do not want to share that data. Third parties want access to that data to innovate against. And then in California, what you'll see is um, with the wildfires that's happening, um, there's a big question on what is the future of the utility? And a big part of that is how does other parties access data and be able to make similar decisions to what the utilities in California are doing today? So that's one, data. If we talk a little bit about decentralization, it, it kind of continues along this vein of how do you deal with some of the threats that are showing up in the grid, and then also do you deal with the opportunities of localized generation and, and storage of power? So the threats that we're seeing is really around cybersecurity, wildfires, um, power shutoffs um, in bulk. And I think the brittleness of the grid has been exposed by some of these pieces. You guys might not be aware, but most of California had their power turned off because of wildfire risk um, just late last year. And it wasn't actually the wildfires that triggered this. It was the prevention of wildfires. And it really showed that there is a single point of failure. And that point of failure is this line could start a fire. So it's it's got trees nearby, and if you electrify this line, you could have a wildfire start. So we have to shut down this entire area. No one has power. And so you're living in a world without any electricity just to prevent wildfires. And that single point of failure creates some big consumer pushback. And at the exact same time, this is a big opportunity for all storage companies, Tesla, LG, Sun, and Sunrun. They're coming out with product offerings that guarantee you won't be out of power whether it's sun, rain, darkness, even a cybersecurity threat, you'll have power. And that value is, is moving to the top of consumers' minds, and that decentralization is going to be a key part of that. So that leads into 
the, the trend number three, which we'll call reliability. And reliability is a big word that can be applied to a lot of different sectors within the energy sector. But really pulling on that same thread, as you install more storage into homes and you have more decentralized generation, you basically are taking away one of the biggest levers that grid operators have to drive the grid. And that's to be able to balance the demand. So when you turn on your lights, we need to be able to generate electricity to help your lights come on. And with you with having increased renewables, so solar and wind, and increased decentralized generation, like your storage system in your backyard, that becomes increasingly hard for grid operators. And so how do you deal with that? How do you actually make sure that your lights will come on when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing? And right now, there's only three options that solve that reliability challenge. One is peaker power plants, so natural gas peakers that can turn on a Um, the flick of a switch. And these peaker plants look like jet engines. So they're very um, carbon intensive. And in places like California, they vow not to actually install or build new peaker plants. So you really are left with two options. And the first option on that is storage. And storage is very expensive, but it's being deployed as quickly as possible. And whether that's utility scale storage or in your home, we're going to see more storage come in. The last piece, the last uh, pathway to actually deal with the reliability challenge is entities like OhmConnect, who are balancing the grid by being intelligent about how you use electricity. So if the sun's not shining and power prices are going up, there's not really, that's not really a good time to run your laundry. But when the sun is shining in the middle of the day and your laundry is already in your washing machine, you should just be able to have that run. If you want to pre-cool your house with AC, that's a good time to do that as well. And so balancing the grid to help provide this reliability is going to be a big piece of this 2020 year. Finally, I'll I'll come to the last one, and this is probably the most uh, controversial one, which is electrification of homes. It's certainly a polarizing discussion on uh, as we talk about electrification. I'm, I'm not sure how much you guys are familiar with the word electrification. Have you guys heard of this before? Yeah. If I if I were to define it, it's basically taking anything that may not be electrified and making it electrified. It's, I think the, the terminology is also considered beneficial electrification. Is that this is that am I am I correct here? Yeah. And that's that's very very close to what, what I would define it as. And I, I would see it actually as a war against natural gas and oil. And it's kind of crazy. A lot of people are think this is this is absolutely preposterous. How could you be better off not uh, burning gas for electricity, transmitting that electricity to your home, and then converting that electricity to heat your home or cook your food? That that makes no sense. And that absolutely makes no sense if you're burning gas for electricity. As we move to 100% carbon-free society, states like California must remove all carbon-based resources. And natural gas is a carbon-based resource, and actually one of the worst uh, carbon-based resources. I attended a talk by Commissioner Hochschild, and he was talking about um, if you only had 1% of your natural gas leak into this atmosphere, and whether that's at your home at the source, or whether it's just through pipelines, as we saw with San Bruno and and PG&E, that will overwhelm 
the savings of natural gas from conversion from natural gas to coal from coal. So it's a it's actually a pretty carbon intensive fuel. And as we move away from natural gas, you basically have two major um, positives that happen. One is you get rid of, of what is essentially a really nasty chemical that is going into your homes. So if you could imagine not having to install carbon monoxide sensors, not having to uh, to install fans in your stove and range top, you're actually removing some of these this infrastructure that comes with natural gas. The data is just starting to come out about these harmful effects, and it, it will almost become a cultural stigma. Uh, if you think back to where the tobacco industry was 20 to 30 years ago, all of these health risks started to show up and the harmful effects with those uh, with tobacco. And when people started to hear about it, they said, oh, I would never smoke. Um, and I think there's going to be something similar that happens there. There's been studies that have shown if you just cook one dinner at home with the natural gas range without a fan on, it's the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes. So we're seeing some really interesting data come out that says this is this is bad. And so we'll, we'll see how that that discussion shakes out. I don't think that this discussion will be solved in 2020, but it will start to happen in 2020. We've already seen uh, tw over 20 cities um, have moved so that no buildings will have um, natural gas. So you can't have a gas range on your home anymore. And that starts as early as this year. Yeah, Matt, with, with those cities that are pushing, uh, you know, the restriction of, of gas going into new homes, obviously you're seeing plenty of resistance from from the stakeholders in, you know, the gas utilities and the associated businesses. Do you think there's going to be a direction that that those gas utilities are going to be able to pivot if, if home electrification does continue to take off? Or, you know, is, is that you know, kind of a, a death knell for for their business? Well, for certain uh, businesses, it will be a death knell. And what we've seen and um, is becoming increasingly popular is that people are starting to double down on electricity. So, for example, Pacific Gas and Electric are really trying to get to ensure that the electricity account remains with them. Because as you think about, as natural gas goes away, electric um, accounts become almost doubly as valuable. So you're no longer paying natural gas, but you're paying a lot more to your electricity provider. Um, so a lot of the energy companies that have gas divisions also have electricity divisions, and they are starting to pour more money to that conversion and making sure that they're insulated from that death knell. Matt, from a business standpoint regarding Ohm Connect, um, is it fair to assess that every time someone comes off the grid by installing solar or battery or both or another alternative off that's not connected to the utility, that's one less customer to the utility. It's also one less customer to Ohm Connect. Am I correct on that assessment or can you maybe talk about that? Well, we, we actually see our, that as a big opportunity. Um, every time you isolate, you have a lot more need for managing power within your home. One of the ways that we get over that right now is by having a large um, centralized grid. And so we're able to see 
the balancing of power because some people turn off their lights at other times than, than you do. But when you've islanded yourself in, say, a microgrid, it becomes even more important to have very precise usage of power. And if you think about it, say you're islanding yourself by having a lot of solar in your home. If you wanted to use power the exact same way, you might need, say, 15 kilowatts of storage. But if you're able to actually be smarter about how you use electricity and whether that's um, your washing machine and your dishwasher and your HVAC system is going to turn on when the, sol- the sun is shining and your solar is creating a lot of energy, you may be able to size your storage system by a, you know, a third of that. So they may only need five kilowatt hour storage systems as opposed to 15. So I think that's the opportunity is there's a lot of ability to replace Uh, storage with efficient management of appliances. And that's part of what we're seeing in in California and other states is they're adopting standardized practices for all appliances. So if you have a hot water heater, for example, that hot water heater would require a certain protocol for it to be grid connected and grid responsive. Yeah. I, I will say that uh, in New York State, there's been a number of initiatives, including one that's been recently announced about what they're calling it non-pipe alternatives, non-pipeline alternatives, where we're looking at exactly the kinds of questions you're asking regarding the electrification of homes uh, prediction that you made, where uh, what kinds of demand response practices could be employed in terms of managing the gas pipeline load that the state is uh, enduring. And you may you may or may not be following, but there's been a moratorium on new, no new pipeline, no, more, no new gas delivery above and beyond what's already uh, coming into the state. So um, it's a, obviously it's a motivation to move over to induction ovens and other alternatives, but you're, um, what you're talking about in terms of electrification of homes and the and the reliance on gas and trying to mitigate that, we're seeing that uh, uh, being addressed on a much wider scale here in the state of New York than we have in the past. And I think New York is well on that forefront on being able to see what that pathway would look like. So um, it's cool to watch New York and then see other states start to take kind of learnings from that, whether it's good or bad from New York's lessons that they've they've experienced. I'll also make a comment about your first prediction, which was about data, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly data is a is, has an inherent value, and it's something that the customer wants. Uh, I know that a lot of AMI producers, a, a lot of AMI in, uh, manufacturers are now advancing their meters to include basically the same kind of power and calculation and, and um, data uh, analysis that you can get out of an iPhone. Um, so the those ugly meters that we may look at on a daily basis and not even give one thought to could be potentially um, a very important brain of tomorrow for the house to, to be able to give you more information about what you're consuming and, and how to, in, in essence, manage your energy behaviors differently than you are today without that information. And that's exactly it. That data is so valuable for not only people to change um, their behavior, but even to be recognizing what uses electricity. We have so many users who join us and say, hey, I'm saving energy. I turned off all the lights 
and I'm sitting in the dark, but at the same time they're running their AC because they don't realize their AC is is using almost on the order of 100x the amount of electricity their four lights that they turned off use. And so that data is a direct feedback mechanism to the consumer to say, hey, this is what's important. Focus on this piece within your home. Excellent. Well, um, Matt Dusterberg, Matt Chester, thank you very much for this enlightening and always fun discussion. Uh, thank you again to Matt Dusterberg, co-founder and CRO of Ohm Connect. You can always reach Matt through the Energy Central platform, where he welcomes your questions and comments. Energy Central's podcast, The Power Perspectives, would not be possible if it were not for our devoted sponsors, including West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics like aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployment, and industry disruptors like DERs and cybersecurity. To ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute, ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant, a leading global provider of consulting services to the public and commercial markets with expertise in energy, sustainability, and infrastructure. To Oracle Utilities, providing best-in-class utilities management solutions to improve reliability, service, and safety for electric, water, and natural gas companies. And to Power. At Power, we help customers make the decisions today that guide them across the bridge to energy's future. Where, where will your energy take you? For more information, visit Power. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspective Podcast.